Hello, and welcome to another episode of Being a Fan of Disney, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Havard. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Wells of the New College of Florida to talk about her fandom of Disney, her fandom of the Disney parks, and Walt Disney World Resort, and specifically, her instruction as a professor at New College of Florida teaching the rhetoric of Walt Disney World to honor students at that college. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a tremendous amount from this conversation with Dr. Wells, and I hope you enjoy it. Please come along with us on our adventure. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Um, And I'm joined today by Dr. Jennifer Wells. Um, I'm really, really excited about this from New College of Florida. And um, she is going to talk to us about her fandom and her work with students um, in looking at various ways of teaching using Walt Disney World, um, specifically Walt Disney World. And so um, I want to get right into it. The first thing I want to do, um, Dr. Wells, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Sure. Um, I'm excited. And can you give us that, um, give us the summary, like your origin story of how you got into Disney and, and where yeah. you, where you grew up to where you are now? Sure. So, um, I am originally from California, from Northern California, a suburb of the San Francisco Bay area. But my family was not a theme park family. Um, And so I know that I went to Disneyland once. I think I was seven, but I have no memory of being there. I have a memory of staying at the hotel and that my and my sister got actually really, really sick. And my dad had to take her to the hospital one day. And then I went with my mom. But I don't remember anything about the park. Um, I think. I think we went to Universal Studios also, and I may remember that, or I may be like layering different things, but regardless, like we didn't grow up a theme park family. We didn't really do. I mean, I watched Disney movies, but I wasn't like a super fan of Disney. Um, And I, uh, the first time I went to Florida, it was for an academic conference at Walt Disney World. Um, And I remember that, there were actually two conferences happening at the same time. One was at the um, Coronado Conference Center and the other one was at the Contemporary. And so I remember I was looking at the map, never been to Florida, never been to Disney, really didn't know anything. And I said, okay, well, these are four miles apart. Like surely there's a walking path where I can just walk from one to the other. Cause I was doing a lot of running at the time. And I was like, this will be great. Like I'll get a break. I'll walk from one place to the next. And so like, of course you cannot walk from the Coronado to the contemporary. And so I think I had to take like, you know, two monorails, a bus and a boat. Like I, I had the most convoluted journey to get back to my hotel And that was really my first experience in Florida, my first experience with Disney World. Um, I was still living in California at the time. And, you know, my friend and I had a great time. We stayed at the Yacht and Beach Club, Yacht Club, which I now realize how nice that is, right? (laughs) I didn't even know, you know, it was like, oh, we're here at this hotel. There's a pirate ship. That's cool. Um, And so then I I ended up, um, I was teaching high school at the time and was getting my PhD also at the same time, which is not necessarily what I would recommend for anyone to do both together. Um, 
And then I got a job at Florida State University. So that's how I ended up in Florida. And second time was again, another conference went down, had, you know, that time we went to Epcot. Um, one of the conference organizers, who's now a good friend of mine, was a big, big Disney World person. So I think I, I did one of the, um, uh, they, they don't do this run anymore, but it's like, it was at Animal Kingdom and there was like puzzles you had to solve as you were okay. doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I had these like different experiences, but nothing, I wasn't yet a super fan. And then I moved to Sarasota to the job I have now where I'm, you know, an hour and a half or two hours away. And I ended up getting an annual pass to Disney World and I got an annual pass to Universal. And I was like, okay, this is my year. I'm going to like see what I'm going to go to the theme parks. Like now I live yeah. close. And, um, you know, again, my, my one friend who knows a lot of stuff, like we I would go with her and she would start explaining things. And then two, two of my friends here, they got annual passes and we just started to go, you know, I would go by myself or we would go together and we would do like themed day. Like we did a transportation day where we tried to take all of the transportation <laughs> and like we did, um, you know, we've done resort hopping at Christmas time to look at the trees we've done different, you know, and then we go to the parks. And so it has turned into something that I now do, you know, maybe once every other month, um, maybe more frequently in the winter when it's not as hot. Um, I now know all the things. So now I'm that person who's like, oh, this is this. And like, this is the backstory for that. And um, so that's kind of how, so just really not, didn't come from my family. Mm -hmm. Didn't, I, you know, I didn't grow up with park memories and it's just something I really enjoy, I think as an adult. Um, and that's really been the way that I've approached my fandom is I'm coming at it as an adult. I'm a Disney adult. I don't have kids. <laughs> so I'm not like going and seeing it through their eyes. Like I really yeah. am just going for myself. And I've done some Disney cruises now and I've been to the, to Hong Kong and to Japan. And so like I've seen the inter some of the international parks and it's just like something that I find just very, very fascinating. So that's a long winded answer to your question. <laughs> Well, no, no, I mean, that's great that thank you The uh, when you being an hour and a half or two hours away, and you say you go every other month or so, mm -hmm. um, being more or less local, um, do you when you when you go, do you go to a park every time that you visit now? Um, do you stay on property and like or does do your visits look a little bit different that you are closer than you know 98% of other fans who would have an experience at Walt Disney World all of the above so okay. I would the most typical trip like I went on Saturday um to the festival of the festival of the arts and didn't make the park pass in time reservation in time so actually started at animal kingdom and then we hopped over there um so i yeah i have dogs and i don't like to leave the dogs for more than eight hours at a time because okay. they need to go to the bathroom <laughs> so if it takes me if it's a bad traffic day and it takes me two hours there two hours back then i've got about four park hours and that's typically you know we'll we'll do a couple of things so like i said unusual for us to do two parks at a time that's time slot typically we just would go to one 
sometimes we, you know, we don't always go to a park. Um, we've done like the Amphicars at Disney Springs. That was mm-hmm. for someone's birthday, but we usually do a park. Um, we, each of my friends has a favorite park. So, and they're not the same. So we kind of, you know, circle between our, our favorite parks. And so we'll go for four hours at Animal Kingdom. We did single rider line for Everest. Once we went through the Maharaja jungle track because I wanted to show her something I had noticed in one of the, the crumbling paintings. That's part of the backstory for that attraction. And then we drove over to Epcot. Um, and then from Epcot, we, you know, went and did our walk around the world, got some food, um, and waited in line for an annual pass holder magnet. And then like that, I didn't know was going to be there. And then that was it, you know, so it's these like pretty short, pretty short trips, um, which when I've done an all day, like if I have a family member who comes out and they want to go all day and then do another park the next day, I think that's like horrible. (laughs) Like so (laughs) I took students, we did it we have a January term and we got lucky one year and I was able to take them for two nights and we did some workshops um, at Disney and I was with them all day and I was like, this is exhausting and it's really loud. <laughs> so like, I think I just get spoiled by these like short trips where you don't have to do everything. You pick a couple of things that you want to do and you, have, and we always, we have so much fun and there's always like something magical that happens. Like, like, some surprise or some cool thing we, you know, like Disney magic. Um, but when I can, I do like to stay on property and I'm a total Fort Wilderness, like okay. stand. I absolutely, like I used, I mean, Animal Kingdom Lodge is amazing. And that was sort of my top place to stay. It's super expensive. And so when I stay there, I often feel like it's awesome, but I'm always like, is it worth $600 yeah. a night? You know, that's crazy. But Fort Wilderness, I have a tent that I can put up in like two seconds. And so I go camp there. I love the campground. I've stayed in the cabins um, with dogs because they're dog friendly, but I absolutely love the campground. And in the off season, you know, it's still expensive for a campground at like $90 a night, but I can, that's okay. I can swing $90 a night. And I just love that. I love that, that area I you know I've gone canoeing there I've done the crafts there like uh, mine for gems Um, haven't fished there but I just yeah so that's my I guess that's my home resort is Fort Wilderness campground (laughs) have you (laughs) have you ever been for the special events like when they when they do Halloween uh, and you can drive around and like trick-or-treat and everything yeah I um I was at a uh, Disney Institute, which is like their professional development arm for business people, I guess. And so I was there for four days doing a workshop over Halloween and was able to um, go over to Fort Wilderness. They typically do the golf cart parade the day before Halloween. So it's not on the 31st. And so you can go and just stand there and you watch the golf carts and like everyone does such a great job with decorating. And there's so many, it's just so fun to walk around and you see every, you know, RV has like 4,700 inflatables and people plan all year to do it and they go all out. And what I love about it, like from a fan perspective is it's just people who decided like they want to be a part of this Disney Halloween Fort Wilderness community. They, they, some of them know each other from year to year. Um, You know, there's all of these different Facebook groups, like 
for Fort Wilderness or for Fort Wilderness scavenger hunt. And it just, the fan community, it really becomes, it's almost, it's like a place within a place. Like it's a Disney bubble within mm -hmm. a Disney bubble of just, and I think each of the resorts kind of has their own sort of following that way. Um, but I think it's pretty hardcore <laughs> Fort yeah. Wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I, I've never, I've never been there to see that, um, a long time ago, we went to Fort Wilderness and just kind of looked around and everything. Um, usually when we go, <clears throat> we're either, a lot of times we're staying off property, uh, close to property, but this last time we stayed at the Art of Animation um, mm -hmm. and it was on the Skyliner route. And yeah. like you said, you have done transportation day or transportation days at Walt Disney World. And um, that experience... I said, if, you know, whenever we go back, like the art of animation, because it's, you know, family suites and it's, it has the kind of intellectual property that it does. Like it's a lot more expensive than the um, pop century, mm -hmm. but, you know, I'm thinking, Hey, every time we go back, I want to stay at pop century because mm -hmm. being able to walk and get on that Skyliner yeah. is just so neat like that skyliner to me is one of the neatest things in walt disney world i wish yep. they would expand that thing to go everywhere <laughs> like you yeah. could take it to every park and every, you know disney springs and everything um i do i i do like the idea that you take it to epcot and you walk up to the front of epcot and take the monorail to walt disney or to magic kingdom i like that mm -hmm. um but um so let's let's shift a little bit and talk about okay. your um, professional background. Um, what you what you study, um, what you teach, kind of how you got on that path, and what you what you are doing now, um, and then that'll get us into what the class is. Okay, um, I'll try to move fairly quickly through the chronology, but. I was a creative writing and philosophy double major in undergrad, and um, I did not start college as a very good student, and I failed out of my first college, and then I went to community college, and then I ended up at another school to graduate, and so I also had this sort of like different trajectory mm -hmm. through college that wasn't linear. <laughs> I was like, Burr. um, and so I graduated, and I got a job teaching SAT prep for Kaplan. You basically teach out of a book. That's it. And I was working at a summer camp and the people at the summer camp knew the people at this one high school. And a week before school started, they had a teacher quit, two, two English teachers quit. And so I was, because of who I knew, and I tell my students this, like your networking is everything because mm -hmm. of, I knew someone who knew someone even though I did not have any teaching experience other than for Kaplan, I got the job. So I taught high school for one year and I said, if I still like it after this year, then that's like, maybe I should consider doing this. And I did like, I, my, my mom is a teacher. Um, my dad is really involved in the teachers union. So I grew up around education, um, as a profession, but really hadn't thought that's what I would do. And I, and I found out that I really liked teaching. I had no idea how to teach, no clue. And I definitely didn't know how to teach 
writing or reading because I'd always been just kind of good at those things. And so it was hard for me to even explain, like, I had no idea how to explain to someone, this is how you do this. Mm -hmm. So from there, I went back to school, got a master's degree in English composition. So that's very focused on teaching writing at the college level, got a certificate in post-secondary reading. So also teaching reading strategies that are useful for college students and adults and was continued to teach high school kind of throughout that time. Um, decided I wanted to get a PhD. <laughs> and so found a program in, in rhetoric and composition. So still my field that uh, had a summer option. So I would go to Pennsylvania in the summer and do okay. these really intense courses. Um, so you kind of do all your coursework in this very condensed format with these other people in this very intense environment. But it was great for me because then I could go back home to California and continue to teach. And for a while, things were fairly like separated. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until I started doing my dissertation that I was like, oh, I'm busy all the time now. Yeah. So um, my dissertation looked at how students from that high school that I was working at, when they went to college, what helped them be successful with their writing and reading? Was it the curriculum they had got out of high school? Like, what was it? And I thought it would be the curriculum and it wasn't. It turned out that knowledge transfer, so being able to take what you learn in one context and apply it successfully in a totally different context okay. um, does not happen very often because a lot of instruction isn't designed to make that happen. And so what we saw with our students was the ones who had like kind of internal dispositions, like they, when they got a, you know, negative feedback from a teacher, they didn't automatically say, oh, this teacher hates me. That's why I got this feedback, right? They were like, oh, well, maybe I could learn something. So it turned out that there were dispositions towards learning that helped facilitate that knowledge transfer. So after my PhD, I got a job in Florida. Um, didn't mean to leave high school teaching because I really loved it, but just worked out that I got this job at FSU. We was there for three years running their writing centers um, and then heard about this job at New College. They were hiring a director of writing to start a writing program. And I like to start new things. So that's how I ended up at New College. Um, and throughout the time, my my research has really focused on, on knowledge transfer. Um, and then as a program administrator, also designing curriculum designing a major, you know, we have a minor in rhetoric and writing that I designed and overseeing our writing center and building that up and um, hiring a great team. So a lot of the sort of like leadership stuff, I guess, yeah. I know it's weird to say, cause we're such a like kind of unit that it's, I don't feel like the boss, but um, how do you build programs? How do you create something that people yeah. want to come and do? So long-winded way of saying, uh, I still teach writing and <laughs> rhetoric, and uh, now I have an idea of what I'm doing, which I did not when I started. <laughs> <laughs> um, the so the we um, we actually connected because I posted something in the Disnet group, which is the the Disney Research and Society. Um, network it, it's a network mm -hmm. of I've talked about it before it's a network of um, people who research Disney in in all forms and it is it is 
very wide and very vast. I mean, like for instance, I write about what the fandom of Disney is and what the um, some of the business strategy. I focus on competition and rivalry and how like that influences not only fans, but can influence decisions that companies are making because my background is in management. Um, I teach mm -hmm. sport and entertainment management. So mm -hmm. that's where I'm coming from. And this group has, you know, such a wide swath of people that are focusing on rhetoric. They're focusing on um, the, like dis the discussion of, of the literary works yeah. of the company. And, and it's so, it's been so interesting for me um, to see this kind of, I, I think about things in research terms as in-groups and out-groups, because that's what I write about, to think about this in-group of, of Disney fans that are academics. Mm -hmm. And within that group, I mean, there probably are, you know, a hundred different things people focus on or more. Yep. Um, and so that's, we contact, we connected because um, I posted something in there. Yeah. You mentioned having a class on mm -hmm. um, the rhetoric of Walt Disney World. So I reached out. Um, and so, and as we were discussing before, um, this is, this is in many ways a new concept to me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and I, I told you, I've, I've been thinking, how long has it been since I've taken a writing class? I, I, yeah. I don't remember. Um, and so you have this fascinating class called the Rhetoric of Walt Disney World. Um, can you, let's start at the beginning, where you start or why you started it, mm -hmm. um, kind of where that idea came from, and then what, well, let's start with, with the why, and then we can get into more of the, what it is in a bit. Sure. So like I said, we have a rhetoric and writing minor, and I, I had wanted to create a kind of rhetoric focused course, uh, for that minor. And so my first version of the course was focused more on nonprofit, uh, communication. So uh, very much about connecting students with potential careers and exploring sort of business writing through the nonprofit lens. So we did a lot of reading about rhetoric in order to understand or analyze like what kinds of communication are going on and, and how did they make those choices? Or if I'm in that situation and I don't know how to write this kind of thing, like how can I use rhetoric to figure it out? Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic happened. And so that class had a required internship component, and I just didn't think it was going to work in the fall after COVID initially hit. So we were in Florida, we were um, hybrid or, or high flex. So some students were at home, some students were in the dorms, but remote on their Zoom. And then I had two students who would come to class with their masks on and we would be on Zoom anyway, because in order for the other students to hear yeah. them, we all have to be on Zoom. So it's just such a surreal thing. But I had thought, you know, okay, this nonprofits class is not going to work really well in, in the current context. What could I teach that would genuinely be enjoyable for me, um, that would be fun for students, and that would kind of offer an escape? Because that was, you know, at that point that the pandemic um, 
had been going on for, you know, five or so months. Vaccines were still kind of not available yet widely. And we just didn't know when it would be over. Like Mm -hmm. when could we go back to our lives? And so I think talking about Disney World at that point for me and for, for a lot of my students ended up just being this like escape, but also like hope that eventually things would go back to normal and mm-hmm. we would be able to go back to Disney World. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, um, and so that's how it started. It was uh, something that I needed. This is a lot of what happens when you're designing academic programs. You have a couple of different goals that you need to hit all at the same time. And so you have to come up with something that does that. And so this hit the need for the class in rhetoric. I could still use a lot of the readings that I was really um, happy with with this other class, but use them in a different context. And then also it provided this sort of escape um, at a kind of hard time for a lot of students. Yeah. That's how it started. Yeah, that's really, really cool. I mean, you know, one thing that we did this class was in its third offering because I started offering it in spring 2018 and I used to only offer it only in the spring Mm -hmm. fall 2020. I started offering it spring and fall. Um, But in spring 2020 um, when the pandemic hit and everything locked down, we had somebody scheduled to, to Skype in with the class. And he, he asked if we were doing anything online. And so him and I just set up a one-on-one interview like you and I are doing right now. Um, and it was, it was fantastic. It, aside from the fact that I was sitting in front of a window. So like I was, yeah. you could not see me because <laughs> I, I did not understand the, I didn't understand lighting principles then. Um, not sure I do now either, but like, and then in, in the fall, we were still remote. Mm-hmm. I think I think spring 2022 may have been the first time that like that we actually or a uh, spring 2021 may have been the first time that we went back or it could have even been fall 2021 I don't know but when when we were still remote in fall 2020 um I had students watching these videos um they always they had since Disney Plus had launched they had had a requirement to have Disney plus. Um, mm-hmm. So they were watching like the Imagineering story and stuff when we mm-hmm. talk about the parks, but um, then, you know, it kind of hit me that whenever we did, whenever I did my first one-on-one interview that, Hey, we could just do this. We don't have to schedule people in class. And so mm-hmm. I just started conducting these types of interviews with people. And eventually it turned into, you know, where, by the fall, we had 20 or 30 videos that people could watch. And then I found out people that weren't in the class liked listening to it. Um, some people in the class would put it on and and go for a walk. So I started, you know, we started the podcast and it all, but it, at that time, it all was very cathartic Yeah, because it, you know, <clears throat> you were dealing with such unknown mm-hmm. and all of, and on top of that, all of these students were as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, I think, I think it's interesting to talk about it now because let's say if someone listens to this a few years in the future, they may not, you know, they they may not have any reference point of this, Right. but in spring 2020 and fall 2020, 
these students were at the flip of a like switch. Some of them were high school juniors or high school seniors, high school seniors. Like, I mean, remember they lost out on everything that they would have done spring senior year. They start college in the fall. They're always online. It was basically, you know, like everybody hears what a great experience your college experience should be. Mm-hmm. And it it was just, you know, you're at home and you're doing yeah. this or, or you could be in a dorm, but you have to stay in your dorm. And, and yeah. it was very tough on people. And it was very cathartic for people to be able to just kind of have this release and yeah. talk about these other things. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I like that. That's a, you took something that was a, a, a bad situation, a scary situation and found a way to, you know, make it a little more manageable for everyone. So I, that's a, that's a very, very neat thing to do. Um, so then before we get into what like the class is, yeah. um, talk a little bit about what exactly, or what specifically rhetoric is and mm-hmm. teaching rhetoric is please sure so many students in high school particularly if they take ap composition um ap lang and composition and composition and lang they will have heard that rhetoric is the art of persuasion which is aristotle and that it's all about ethos pathos and logos and in the ap class you learn how to analyze things through those different modes and and that's that's true and that's great but that's such a tiny, tiny piece of this whole big field. So I would say, first of all, rhetoric is a field of study. So it's a whole discipline with lots of different, like any discipline, lots of different sub areas. But basically people are, people in rhetoric are looking at how persuasion and communication work. Um, and then they also look at kind of the artistry of that. I think more specifically, my friend Doug Downs, who wrote a chapter in the book that I use, um, he said that rhetoric is a process by which humans or human community, by which humans communicate with each other through symbols. And it's also the study of how humans do that. And the more you kind of think about rhetoric and particularly with the theme parks, we are looking at the ways in which Disney is always communicating its message Mm -hmm. through lots of different symbols, whether it's park design, layout, uh, signage, cast member body language, cast member outfits, like there's symbols all over the place and they're all meant to be communicating these different things. And so rhetoric really looks at how does that happen? And if we can understand how that happens and study that, then that's where the writing part comes in. If I can understand the ways in which these different symbols are communicating and I'm put in a situation where I need to communicate something, I now understand how things work and therefore I have more control over the choices that I make. So, so there's kind of degrees of complexity. So basically rhetoric, you look at how people communicate, how it works. um, And then once you get into symbols, it gets a little bit more uh, concrete, I think. Where does storytelling fit into all of this? Because like when one thing I think of with the Walt Disney Company is just, I mean, a hundred plus years of storytelling now. And yeah. whenever I think about the parks, 
and I walk into a park, I'm constantly thinking there's a story being told here. Mm -hmm. um, where does, so I guess, where does storytelling fit in like the study of rhetoric? Um, I mean, I think you can look at going back to Aristotle, you know, he has these canons, things like invention. How is a story invented? How is it communicated? Um, and you can look at the different processes that people engage in to tell stories. There's also that, you know, the structure of stories. Um, it would be more literature to look at what is that structure. Rhetoric asks, why is that structure that way? And why is it effective at doing whatever it is supposed to do? And so with Disney, yeah, you go in and the whole thing is even Walt said, you know, this is meant to be like a movie. You walk in mm -hmm. uh, the, the theater uh, curtains part and you see the, everything before you. And so um, from a rhetorical perspective, we look at things like like the interactive and immersive cues. So okay. the cue for um Expedition Everest is one that we talk about a lot and how from the moment you get into that queue, you're not just observing a story, you are part of that story. Mm -hmm. You are literally walking through a museum of the Yeti going to go on this ride. So I think, um, I, yeah, rhetoric offers you just different tools and different frames and lenses to look at those sorts of things. And, and I have another example. I don't know if it fits here or somewhere else later, but um, it's just, it's so interesting when you understand, I feel this way. And then you look at what Disney Imagineering did to make you feel that way. And you're like, yeah. oh, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that. Cause you're just enjoying the story and you don't realize like how much thought and strategy went into evoking that response that you have. Yeah. Um, well, then let's get into what the class is. And yeah. remember to give your example because I don't want to stop recording and sure. have forgotten. And then be like, oh, no. Okay. Um, so, so, so either remind me or better yet, just. I'll No, I got it. Just got throw it. it in somewhere because I'll, I don't want to forget it. Sure. Um, so what is what is the class? So the class um, meets twice a week and for about 80 minutes um, <clears throat> before class on Monday, students do the reading for the week in perusal, which is an online tool that allows students to be reading and leaving marginal comments and responding to each other's marginal comments um, so that we actually have a lot of class discussion about the reading before class. And the readings are mostly contemporary rhetorical theory. Um, there's a lot of classical rhetoric that's fantastic, but we do focus more on, on more contemporary um, theorists. So reading rhetorical theory, it's a lot like reading philosophy. I mean, it's 15 pages, but that might take a while because <laughs> yeah. it's a lot to get through. And most of the articles are not written for students. They're written for other rhetoricians. And so there's a lot of assumption of you would know who this person is or you know what this term is. So it's very challenging reading, but using the perusal and using those active reading strategies in that discussion, um, I think helps make it more accessible to students. So then Monday in class is our activity day. So we do an activity based on the reading. So an example that I shared with you earlier is um, they did a bunch, they they read a, a reading that had a lot of 
terms being introduced. So I made bingo sheets with the terms on it. Different teams got their different bingo sheets. And then they went outside, sort of walked around for about 20 minutes, looking for things that they felt like were examples of that term. So right away, they're learning not only the term, but how to apply it or how to connect it to something in the wild is what I say. And so, you know, today um, we looked at different websites from Disney to look at rhetorical situations. They did that reading and we looked at the websites. Um, they did some stuff with posters on the wall. And so that's that's Monday. And then, I mean, sorry, Tuesday, <laughs> Tuesday, Thursday. So that's Tuesday class. And then Thursday is our writing workshop day. So it's a very writing intensive course, but kind of like an art class, I'm having students do the creation, do the writing as a part of the class, or at least start it, rather than me saying, here's your assignment, like go away and write it and come back. I want them to write it in front of me. Um, so that way they learn the value of having scheduled time to write instead of just like finding time. It's like, this is the time that you're going to be doing it. Writing in a group. So not writing together collaboratively, but like everybody's individually doing their work. And that helps. Um, there's a theory from ADHD studies about body doubling. It, it helps you stay focused if you have someone kind of also doing the work with you. And then also if I teach a strategy or I teach a technique, then I'm walking around and there to answer questions as they come up rather than a student going away, writing about it. And then having a question, probably not going to email me <laughs> about it. Or if they do, you know, I'm not going to get back to them right away. So it's more, be it's like very intentional to have this writing time in class, which is really, I think, not common. Like mm -hmm. a lot of writing, just you do it outside of class. And so this way it sort of flips that. So that's what like a typical week is a, a reading that'll introduce a theory, working with that reading in class to make sure we kind of understand it, apply it, and then applying it to some aspect of Disney World. Um, so next week is actually one of my favorite readings, and it tends to be one of the most popular readings in the class, and it's on a concept called intertextuality. And so intertextuality, there's two versions of it, but one is that if you say something that came from another place or came from another text, it's ref it's like calling back to it. And if someone recognizes or has read the initial text, they're going to recognize that you are using that reference. And so they kind of have an additional layer of understanding. So one way to think about intertextuality is like Easter eggs inside a movie or inside the theme parks. Because an Easter egg is intertextual. It's there because somebody with some knowledge of this thing existing mm -hmm. in a different context will see it here and they will get the joke. They'll get the reference. So a couple, like two years ago, the students and I went on a, a trip to Disney Imagination Campus where different cast members talk about immersive storytelling and theme park design. And so our theme park design today, day, we went to Hollywood Studios and no, immersive storytelling, we went to Hollywood Studios and we were in Galaxy's Edge, Star Wars land. And our cast member was explaining that when Imagineers designed it, <clears throat> they had to design a land that Star Wars nerds would totally understand, but also people who had never seen Star Wars mm -hmm. would understand. So that's a really interesting challenge from a communications perspective. 
So one example of intertextuality, an easy example is the Coke bottles. And I don't know if you remember yeah. when, yeah. So they're, they're not shaped like regular Coke bottles, but they have a, a script not in English that yeah. is in the Star Wars language, but you look at it and it's a symbol, you recognize that's the Coke color. Mm -hmm. You know, you get that that's what that is. So that's intertextual because it's, you know what that is because you know what a Coke bottle is. But a more interesting kind of Easter eggy example is the trash cans. Like I'm obsessed with the trash cans. So the trash cans in Galaxy's Edge um, on the back of them have a number, number is 3263827. And you would probably not think like anything of that number unless you are like a total, total hardcore Star Wars absolute nerd. And then you would recognize that that is the number of the trash compactor that the characters are in early in the Star Wars uh, first three when they're about to be squished. And they said, you know, it's like, where are two or I think it's R2 or C3PO says, you know, where are you? And they say the number yeah. because that's the number of the trash compactor. Well, that's the number of the trash can in Galaxy's Edge. So that's intertextual because it's it's like there's probably 1% of 1% of 1% of all the people that are going to go to Galaxy's Edge. But for that person, they will get the joke because it's a trash can and that was a trash compactor. So yeah, that's just an example of of how we would um analyze something and then the question is okay now that you know that like how do you see this trash can differently how do you understand choices that were made about what to put on this trash can and then you can go from there and that's usually the kinds of things i'll explore in the writing day is when i apply this term or concept to this aspect of the park this is what i now understand i understand this about this symbol yeah. So that's cool. It's one of my favorite examples because it's just so, I was so excited when I learned that because I'm not enough of a Star Wars nerd to like have memorized that number. <laughs> so I was like, that's so cool. That, <laughs> um, I, I didn't know that. That's really mm -hmm. cool. So on the back of every trash can. That's, In Galaxy that's, Bay. Okay. Um, since you talked about Galaxy's Edge, from that perspective, from intertextuality, mm -hmm. like, one of the big challenges, and you, I mean, you said it, one big challenge was, wh what is this world going to look like? You know, the Imagineers wanted people to feel like they were in the Star Wars galaxy. Um, and so then it came, it led to the questions, do we want it to sort of be a tour of what the galaxy you know, was and like kind of this historical tour going back through some of the, the famous movies and the scenes and everything. And, you know, the, some of the decisions, well, they already had that with Star Tours and they, you know, they could do all of that thing, do all of that stuff. So this was going to be like a new world. Um, From your perspective, do you think they have, do you think Galaxy's Edge has been successful in engaging those hardcore star wars fans while also being attractive and engaging to people that may never have seen star wars before 
I mean, it, it seems to be very successful. I, I would say that if you study fandom, you know that there's always going to be a hardcore element of your fans who will never be satisfied with anything that is, um, you know, derivative. So I'm sure there are people that are like, oh, this could be so much better. Like, why didn't they do this? You know, always like backseat um, or armchair, you yeah. know, imagineers. Like, this is what I think we should have done. They should have done. And then, you know, I think that there's your typical not Star Wars person who goes in and and the attractions are really great. Um, you don't have to know the story to understand that you're being, you know, taken away by stormtroopers and that they're not good people or good whatever they are. Um, and, you know, the the guide or the cast member pointed out, like even the design of the marketplace um, does have a little bit of intertextual callback to the to like Middle Eastern Moroccan style market. So you recognize this as a place of commerce. You recognize this is sort of dusty and there's, um, you know, industrial elements. And so you can be in that world without understanding any of it and really, I think, appreciate it. It is not my favorite world. And so that's what I think is it. I totally appreciate it as an intellectual <laughs> you know, exercise. I think it's, I think that the, what they've done to, to put those Easter eggs in for those hardcore fans, you know, people like have these relationships with the Star Wars, um, per particularly the first three and nobody wants that to be messed up. So yeah. I think that, you know, I think that they succeeded in that way. Um, but it's not my favorite. So what is your favorite? <laughs> Um, I am a total Animal Kingdom, okay. everything Animal Kingdom. And recently, I have been on um, on a, an appreciation for Dino Land USA. Okay. And I think that's like a total, totally underrated part of Animal Kingdom. And I know it's going to be going away. Um, but the more that I learn about the theming and the backstory, the more I, I get really into being in Dino Land USA. Um, but that's just me, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but all, I mean, any, any of the lands in Animal Kingdom, I'm so happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the, what are some of the assignments? Like give a, a, a example of a few of the assignments that students do in the class. So every Thursday, our writing day, um, they have to write 750 words, um, not all, you know, it's possible to do that in class, but many people don't get to that in class. That's okay. I see where they started. I see how their thinking is evolving. And so if they don't get to their word count, then they, they have to finish that before uh, the next class. Okay. Um, and so all of those assignments are meant to have students take a term from the reading, ideas from the reading, apply it to something that I'm giving them. So whether it's, we looked at websites today, um, we look at Joe Rohde kind of talking about the, uh, what he used to make, uh, animal kingdom in terms of lighting and woodwork and that kind of thing. Um, we look at trash cans <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we look at ride through videos sometimes so that students who haven't been to the parks, you know, can still have uh, things to talk about. And that's the first half of the semester. And I'm also teaching some really specific um, writing techniques kind of along the way. 
And then in the second half of the semester, the students get to propose their own exploration of um, some aspect of Disney World that they want to look into through these rhetorical lenses. So they use the readings that I've given them to create kind of a review of literature. So I teach them how to do that mm -hmm. and then turn that into a framing and then they get to explore. And so things that they write about, these are tend to be like 10 to 20 page papers, depending on what they do and how many images they put in. Um, I had a really interesting paper about the music on the Disney buses and like okay. how, and they analyze that rhetorically. I had another great paper about Epcot and its relationship to alcohol and how Disney has sort of embraced it, but then also kept a distance in a way, like they haven't branded it. Um, and there's all these, you know, drink around the world shirts and stuff. So that was a really interesting paper. Um, another student who's interested in, in teaching and education looked at the um, Hall of Presidents versus Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Okay. The Hall of Presidents is kind of panned universally. Everyone seems to love Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. And so he looked at it rhetorically, but also with this lens of is this, what is infotainment? What is edutainment? Is that what this is? Um, so really the papers are so all over the place because they can choose to look at whatever they want. Um, and they're just really, really fun to read. And then they learn how to do a bunch of really important things with proposal writing, pitching a paper idea, coming up with your theoretical frame, your lit review, uh, collecting your information, analyzing it, saying what you found. So they they also learn some really important um, skills. All of our students have to write a senior thesis to graduate. So okay. it's really a, a great introduction into how do you even come up with a topic? How do you turn that topic into a question? How do you actually focus that question and make it doable? So yeah, does a lot of things. Do you, <laughs> do, you, um, do you know... Have you kept track of, uh, are there any students who do their senior thesis on Walt Disney World? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the student who did the Disney buses, the music on the buses, ended up looking at music in Disney parks as her, as her, sorry, there's a dog, as her um, thesis <laughs> and um, included some of what she had done, you know, and in, in modified it for that context. But she definitely, um, yeah, and that was great. And I got to go to her thesis presentation where she defended her thesis. And it was just such a cool moment to see something that started in my class turn into this bigger project. Yeah, yeah. So when you go, yes. what, I guess, how do you, we all take our perceptions and our mindsets into how we enjoy anything mm -hmm. and when we go to walt disney world when we go to any park we do that um uh, like when i go to a park for example i am going and i'm looking at how is crowd flow mm -hmm. where is you know like where the backstage areas how easy is it for cast members to get you know on stage and backstage and i this was actually someone told me this um and, and I've been like fascinated with it since is like, you know, if at Walt Disney World or any of the parts, someone does something that they shouldn't do, they they steal something or they do something that 
requires them to either be arrested or be questioned by police or any you don't see that mm -hmm. you see this person not knowing that they are kind of being herded in a way to where they can be asked to step backstage you know mm -hmm. so something might happen and and they have you know the people that are around Walt Disney World or any of the parks following and and what this person is sort of you know kind of guided almost into this area where then somebody can kind of step out and say hey will you please step backstage so we can handle this so we can talk about this and that's where so that's where those things are handled things like that fascinate me and, and mm -hmm. the storytelling fascinates me the one thing I tell my one thing I try not to do and I definitely tell my kids to do not to do is don't let when you're looking at something and I'm thinking about you know at, at the the haunted mansion at Disneyland the reason you go down into this the reason the reason the stretching room exists is so you can walk underneath the train tracks the reason mm -hmm. there are two drops on um pirates of the caribbean is so you can get under the train tracks because the show buildings mm -hmm. on the other side i like knowing all of that but at the same time don't let that take away the quote-unquote magic mm -hmm. um so yeah. when you go to a park or you go to anywhere on walt disney world property um what are things that you kind of like to look at or how do you look at walt disney world when you go so I think I think there's a really interesting distinction that you can make between just being a fan and enjoying things and being an academic and analyzing things through the things that you study or the things that you teach. And I know that there is a lot of um, anti, well, at least in my field, a lot of anti-Disney sentiment. Um, and so someone learns that you study Disney or they you're going to Disney and they're like, ugh you know, like they're capitalists or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, oh, it's so crowded. Like, oh, it's so stupid. You know, and it's just like, even if they haven't been in a while, it's just disdainful comments. And the point that I make to students and to my, to my colleagues is you can be critical of something in an academic way or, or, you know, have thoughts about it that are like, mm, I don't know about this, mm -hmm. but you can also still be a fan. And so, just because you're a fan of something doesn't mean everything is perfect all the time. Um, and so my approach to the parks is sometimes I notice things. Um, I did go again after COVID, after the park reopened, like two weeks after it reopened and, and nobody was there. It was just so desolate. And I had, I went to Animal Kingdom and I got to walk through the queue for um, the Maharaja Jungle Trek like the whole thing was totally empty. So I really got to walk through and I had never noticed all of the theming, all of the detail. Um, same with Kali River Rapids, that queue. And so sometimes I go in and I, and I notice things. I recently went in and took a bunch of pictures of Dinoland because I want to talk about it in my class. And then and that, now I see that I'm like, oh, there's a, like they have a pulley system up there because that's where the graduate students sit, like in the, mm -hmm. in the backstory. But other times I'm just like with my friends, I'm having a really good time. I'm going to go get some good food. You know, we're going to go ride a ride that we really like. And I don't have to be always thinking about it. Um, and yeah, I know all of this stuff, but you can turn it off and just be happy that you're there. And I think that's my response to a lot of academics who kind of are snobby about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, 
you can be snobby about it, but you can also still have a really good time if you want to. Yeah. And we, we talk about in, in our class, um, and I, I, I reference it in the book that what you said, you can, if you love something, you can be critical of that. You should be critical of it. Critical doesn't always mean that it's negative. You just right. take a critical look at something and, mm-hmm. and you don't have to appreciate, you don't have to love everything to appreciate it. You don't yeah. have to agree with everything to appreciate it. You know, it's, it's similar to a person that um, has a, you know, if you have a self-deprecating sense of humor um, on some level, there, there obviously are other reasons why people believe that occurs as well, but also on some level, a person with a self-deprecating sense of humor, at least will, will feel that they're doing that to kind of keep themselves in check in some way. Right. And they're doing that. Possibly they're, they're, they're doing it because of some deeper psychological thing that, but also if you appreciate yourself, you could also make fun of yourself. You know, you mm-hmm. don't have to take yourself so seriously, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, and so we, we talk about that in the class as well, that, you know, you, you can appreciate something. Um, and for me, when I go, I'm, I'm such a big, try to be such a big trivia buff that I, <laughs> I just, I love talking about all of yeah. it to the point where you're that um, person to the point where people suggest <laughs> that I teach a class on it. So I stop yeah. talking to them about it. Um, so, so even, I mean, it doesn't matter when, whenever I go, I, I have fun every single time that I go, I enjoy it. I love the magic and everything, mm-hmm. but every time I go, I'm, I, maybe I don't have that ability or I, I just don't want to kind of like flip that switch. Cause I love seeing all the different things that are, that are going into it um, yeah. while stopping to like appreciate that, especially if I'm with my kids, like mm-hmm. let's, you know, let's let them do this. They don't need to know everything behind it. Although right. now I've turned my kids into, they want to know all of that. Yeah. They, the, like they, they're the, like, like they will, they will say, oh, well, the Haunted Mansion in Orlando stretches up the Haunted Mansion and Disneyland stretches like that's an elevator and it. It's kind of like, oh, well, they, they enjoy it. So hopefully it's not taking away from the quote unquote magic for them. Um, for anyone who, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say one of my, another student paper looked at the haunted mansions, all of them and, Mm -hmm. and explained sort of like, why, like, why does Shanghai not have a haunted mansion? Why is the one in Hong Kong very different than the ones that, you know? So anyway, I think that's, yes, all of that. You can become that person. Well, the one in Hong Kong, (laughs) like, (laughs) go ahead. um, one thing that I think is interesting um, is before we started recording, you mentioned having been to several of the international parks. Mm-hmm. Which international parks have you been to again? I've been to Hong Kong Disneyland twice and also to the resorts there. Um, and I've been to Tokyo Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea. I was supposed to go to Shanghai. COVID hit, so I didn't get to go. And I have not been to uh, Disneyland Paris. Okay. So really you only need Paris and, and Shanghai to kind of complete the, yeah. <laughs> the, the map, um, yeah. from a, like 
from a, a from your perspective for like in the classes in the class how is the rhetoric the storytelling what they're trying to convey to you how is that different from like the domestic parts mm -hmm. and the the international parts that you've been to so I think one of the things that we talk about in rhetoric is understanding your audience. And obviously at a theme park, you've got an international audience, but the audience for Hong Kong, while it is international, it is also kind of a locals park in the way that Disneyland is sort of a locals park, mm -hmm. even though a lot of people come to it. Um, and so if you're going to create a theme park in another country with a different audience or a different primary audience, you really have to know about their values and what's important to them. And you have to design a park that reflects that. And so, um, so it's interesting comparing like the Disney, like Hong Kong Disneyland, Tokyo Disneyland, because those are very similar to the existing mm -hmm. Magic Kingdom and Disneyland Park um, to the point where you're kind of walking through and you're like, this looks so familiar, but I've never been here before mm. because, you know, it's like that. And so, um, so yeah, one of the, you know, one of the things with Hong Kong and with Shanghai is that the haunted mansion is not um, scary. There is no haunted mansion in Shanghai due to the values of many mainland Chinese people about ghosts and about spirits. It's mm -hmm. not like, doesn't make sense in that cultural context to create a haunted mansion. The one in Hong Kong, similarly, um, is not about scary ghosts. It's about, uh, you know, a music box that gets opened up and all of a sudden all the instruments become animated and all of this stuff, museum stuff on the walls becomes animated. Um, and so you just have to look at it like, who was the audience for this? What were their values? What are their values? How did that knowledge impact choices that the Imagineers made when taking something that is born in the United States and adapting it for that context? And so when you look at it rhetorically, you're going to see a lot of these different things, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is super interesting. Yeah. Um, so then for last question, before we get to the rapid style questions. Sure. For anyone that. who who isn't in, for everyone not in the class, mm -hmm. um, whenever they go to the park, or any whenever they go to any of the parks, Walt Disney World, anywhere, uh, what are some, I guess, what are some kind of examples you could give that they could they could look for, um, to kind of see to better understand like what the students in this class are doing or mm -hmm. when you go to the park, like how you're looking at things, like what are some of those examples? Well, I think since I explained intertextuality, I think that's a great place to start because so many things in the parks are referring back to mm -hmm. other IP, um, like the names when you walk down Main Street in Magic Kingdom, all of the names on the shops are imagine, you know, people that were famous in the Disney company and, you know, VPs and stuff like that. You may not know who those people are, but all of those are based, those are names based on real people. And so there's so many things in the parks that are intertextual that I think that's a really great place to start. I've seen this before. 
or this reminds me of something, or I, this looks like this other thing. And then if that's true, why, why is that the thing that was made intertextual and how is that impacting? Do I feel familiar? Like, is this a familiar place? Because it looks like somewhere I've been before, even if I've never been there before. Um, and I think that's a really good place to start. I think thinking about, um, audience and about values, because again, Disney has to make something that makes sense to people from all over the world, as well as people from all over the U.S. Uh, it's very expensive. So I think you also are looking at how is Disney communicating its value for the amount of money people are paying. And so you can kind of think about different audience values and look at how does Disney um, try to either honor or accommodate, like, I don't know, the accommodate is probably not even the right word, but how are they shaping the experience so that it is available to all these different audiences? Um, and I think that's really fun to think about also. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. The, the, anything else that I have missed that I've left out before we get to the rapid questions you think is important? Um, I mean, I would say I'm a fan of your podcast now, obviously, but oh, um, also the 3028 is the podcast. It's called uh, 3028 Disney Listery and Disney History. And I get a lot of information about some of this backstory stuff um, from that podcast. And so if people are interested in learning more about that um, from your class and your podcast, I definitely would also recommend the 3028 hard to find because it doesn't sound like a Disney podcast. <laughs> so yeah. what, is the, what are these numbers there? But um, I just think, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of other great podcasts um, that are, or YouTube channels that cover some of this back story or history um, that I think are really fun. So that's what I would recommend. Okay. Thank you. Um, so for some of the, the rapid questions, like I'm, I'm, I think I picked up, um, correct me if I'm wrong, your favorite park is Animal Kingdom yes. at Walt Disney World. Yes. Um, and favorite hotel would be? Um... My favorite hotel would be the Animal Kingdom Lodge, but my favorite okay. place to stay is Fort Wilderness Campground. Yeah. Okay. So, so we'll kind of, we'll kind of take those off um, okay. the shelf. Right. Uh, this could be any park you've been to. And the way these rapid questions work, you can explain your answers. You don't have to explain your answers. Um, and I ask for a favorite, um, but you know, if you have two or three, that's fine. Um, okay. favorite attraction that is a ride at any Disney park you've been to. Expedition Everest. Okay. Um, favorite show at any Disney park. I guess Festival of the Lion King. I feel like everything I'm going to say is Animal Kingdom, but I'll try okay. to come up with something else. But Festival of the Lion King, I love it. I can watch it a hundred times. Okay. Favorite restaurant? Nomad Lounge. <laughs> okay. Um, and favorite, uh, kind of a different category, favorite um, restaurant that is not, that's on Disney property, not in a Disney park. So like downtown Disney, Disney Springs, things like that. Um, or it could be in any of the hotels and anywhere yeah. that you've stayed. Um, I really love Jock Lindsay's hangar bar, which is okay. in, you know, Disney Springs. 
Um, I also really like Morimoto, which is, a, you know, that's kind of a chain, but mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's really good too. And um, uh, in the hotels, I like um, totally blanking on the name of the, of the one at the yacht club. <laughs> it's the seafood. Okay. Uh, I'm totally right. I cannot like I, ah, ale and compass. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Love that um, one. I, when I go, I don't, I don't do many sit down restaurants. I have been to Jock Lindsay's and that is a, that's a great example of like this, this very kind of small character in yes. the universe of Indiana Jones. And, yeah. but now there's this massive backstory around this character. And I've even heard some people say, you know, they, they hope at some point um, he would be included in SEA um, because that would be kind of a cool thing. However, it's also, you know, SEA is kind of, those are all parts specific characters. Right. They didn't come from, you know, other intellectual property. Um, but it is very interesting that, you know, this character that you see on screen for, you know, 30 seconds maybe and says yeah. two or three lines like yeah he kind of has this whole backstory around him now um yeah so then next um earlier when we were talking it, it gave me the idea of when you were talking about speaking with imagineers mm -hmm. um and most disney fans know imagineers come in various roles various um shapes and and responsibilities if you were given a chance to be an imagineer with the walt disney company what role do you think you would want in walt disney imagineering um I would, I would have to have some knowledge that I don't have, but I did learn that, sorry, my dog is jumping up on my lap. Um, I did learn that there is a department within Imagineering that is, they basically find historical artifacts for the right place at the right time. So like in the, in the shops in Magic Kingdom in Main Street, like you've got turn of the century things that are actually like real artifacts from that mm -hmm. time. And that there's an Imagineer whose job it is to know the history and know exactly what kind of artifacts to put in. And I just think that would be such a cool job to have this very like minutia, like minute role dealing with minutia. And yet you could, you know, there's a thousand choices you can make. What should go in that window to say that this is that time period. And I think that would, I'm not a historian, but once I heard about that job, I'm like, that's such a specific job. I just love it. Like that would be yeah. so cool. Yeah, that yeah. would be that. Um, so I'm going to ask, what would your dream job be with Walt Disney? Um, and that could be, that could be an Imagineering, what you just talked about. That could be, you know, being the conductor of the train. That could be anything. If, if, you know, if you were approached and said, what job do you want? with the Walt Disney company, what would it be? So I would love to work for the Imagination Campus, which is the arm of Disney World that 
works with high school students and middle school students, and they have these workshops, right? That we took my that I took my students to, and um, I would love to. This job doesn't exist, but I would love it if the Imagination Campus expanded into offering more college level curriculum. Mm -hmm. Some of it parks based, some of it based on the parks, and so to be able to do things like my class, but for anyone you know in the world or um, have other content area experts come in and also design different classes or different experiences. I think we've seen that in some other industries that are creating courses around their, you know, their company. Um, and I just think that there's so like, as you know, and as I know, there's so much, and as we've seen in that group there in Disney, there's so many things that so many different fields that, that touch on Disney or that use Disney. And I just think it would be so fun to be a curriculum designer and to be program manager and bring in all of these different um, content area experts and, and really expand what they can offer um, beyond, you know, high school students. Yeah. Yeah. When <laughs> we actually, when the pandemic hit, we were planning a trip to um, take students to Walt Disney World um, and mm -hmm. as part of their, at that time, they called it their college program. And it was like, yep. a it was like a year or two old it didn't come back after the pandemic. It sort of got folded back under, like you still can do the imagination um, campus. Right. Um, not, it doesn't seem like it's in the same way, um, mm -hmm. but I would, I mean, I had meetings with people about that. I would love to, that, you know, things like that were so neat. I thought, yeah, how cool would it be that you could go? And, and especially if, if you were somebody who was teaching there, how cool would mm -hmm. it be to, to know that one time a year or multiple times a year, you're going and you're offering these types of courses. Um, that would be really, really fun to do. Um, so so send the this, last send thing, oh, go ahead. Them. <laughs> What's that? I said, send this, send this podcast to them. Be like, hey, we talked about this idea. We think yep. that you should. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if you, if you, uh, <laughs> if you ever get that dream job, I will definitely remember, invite. and and I, I will, I will come teach. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So the last one is um, you talked about intertextuality and you mm -hmm. gave, I think, a, an amazing example of intertextuality being the Easter eggs, because that is one of the most enjoyable things for people that are big Disney fans to do at the parks or mm -hmm. when they're watching movies or whatever. One of the really, really cool things to me about specifically the Disney parks is you can go, if you know nothing about it, you can enjoy things. If mm -hmm. if that's your first time, you can enjoy things. If it is your 200th time going, you can find little things to focus in on um, and basically go as in depth with everything as you want to. So mm -hmm. when we talk about Easter eggs, what are your three to five favorite Easter eggs in any of the Walt Disney parks or anywhere on any Disney property doesn't have to be the park specific. So I know I said that my favorite park is animal kingdom, but my favorite park like ever of all time is actually Tokyo Disney sea, which I haven't really talked about very much. And I only went one time and I still think about it probably once a week. It was, it's just the most incredible um, place I've ever been. And that is where I started to pick up on the, that 
the SEA, the Society of Explorers mm-hmm. and Adventurers. And so there, um, so there are Easter eggs kind of throughout Tokyo Disney Sea and also Hong Kong. Um, and so like their Tower of Terror is high tower, you know, mm-hmm. and it's all about like, and so there's just so much theming around this, um, this character that is not in any other intellectual property. So people don't really, you don't really know who Harrison Hightower is unless you know about Disney Sea. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe there's all of this mm-hmm. stuff about that. So that's, that's one of my favorite. And again, to have an experience in an overseas park where you feel like you're in the inside, like you're in the in-group because you get mm-hmm. the reference, like that's super, super kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like I said, um, at Maharaja Jungle Trek, there, I don't know if it's an Easter egg, but there's, you know, the theme of it is that it was an old Indian hunting lodge that has since fallen into disrepair and has been retaken by the environment. And the tigers that were hunted are now kind of ruling the space. So there's um, some paintings on the walls that were like the original hunting lodge paintings. And there's one of a guy holding something that's like a little box kind of shaped uh, with a dome. And I saw this the other day. And then I walked around the corner and I looked at the aviary where the birds are in this jungle trek. And it's the same thing. So the aviary is what this guy is holding in this painting. And I don't know, I don't know anything other than that, but I love that there's a reference to something that's already like, that's in the same attraction, like right here. And so Mm. I'm, I, now I have to find out what, what it is and why it's there for a reason. So why, (laughs) why is that there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Nomad Lounge has a bunch of you know different drinks that are that are themed kind of based on Imagineers and Joe Rody. So Jen's tattoo um, is a drink that's based on his wife. You know who gets who? I guess her name was either him or someone else um, has a wife named Jen who gets a tattoo when they travel, and it's not a great drink, but I love the name of that. That's fun. <laughs> um, uh. Gosh, at Epcot, um, I don't think it's really an Easter egg, but Morocco, the whole pavilion is just, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was designed by Moroccans who were hired to design a replica of Morocco. And I've been to Morocco. And so for me, when I go there, I'm able to almost like imagine that I'm not at Disney World and that I'm actually back in Morocco because that's how accurate the feel of the of the old Medina mm-hmm. and the, the Zelig tile. Like, I feel like I'm back there. So that's, I really, it's not an Easter egg, but I really like that. Um, and then at Fort Wilderness, um, they're not an Easter egg. I guess it is if you know the history, but Fort Wilderness was one of the original resorts um, mm-hmm. opened at the same time. And there used to be a train that went around Fort Wilderness and you could ride your train around, you go around that way. Now it's buses. Um, and there are still places where you can see the tracks of the original train, oh, which okay. if you don't know that, you're like, oh, there's train tracks here. But if you know what they are, you're like, but these were like the original train tracks of this train that went around in the 70s. Um, and I think not an Easter egg because it's not necessarily there intentionally, but I love that kind of thing where you're like, I know what this is and I know where this came from. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And so for anybody who wants more information, either um, about the class or um, about you, where can they follow you either on social media or how do they get in contact with you? 
Um, so my work email, I'll share it, um, okay. is jwells at ncf.edu. So jwells at ncf.edu. Um, I am on Instagram under nettyp123. Um, so not nutty professor, but that's what everybody thinks. Um, okay. <laughs> my dogs have a much more active social media presence than I do. Okay. And I had to delete my Twitter because of stuff at my job. So um, okay. the best thing would be to just email me if they want to talk more about the class. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you so yeah. much for talking about this. And um, I learned a tremendous amount today, um, as we talked about before we started recording. Um, so thanks for, for going over all of this with us. Um, it sounds like an amazing class. The next time I go, um, I'm definitely, when I see Easter eggs, I am going to be thinking about it as an Easter egg, but also as intertextuality from now on. Um, so That's thank you right. very much. My work for, is for done. Us. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. That's going to do it for another episode of Being a Fan of Disney, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Habert. Hosting and producing this podcast has been very fun and extremely beneficial and rewarding for me. I really, really enjoy the conversations I get to have with people and sharing those conversations and information with listeners of this podcast. You can follow along with the class, podcast, take one episodes and interviews or visits by subscribing to the show wherever you get your podcasts, following me on Instagram and threads at cody.haber, by joining the Facebook public group, being a fan of Disney, and by visiting www.sharedperspectives.org. Being a fan of Disney, the book is available on Amazon in Kindle, paperback, hardback, and audible versions. This has been a passion project of mine for a long time, and I am very happy that it is now available for others to read. I hope you enjoy and please engage with the book and activities more at sharedperspectives.org. As I said, I really enjoy this podcast. I am extremely thankful for all of you coming along on this journey with us. And I really, really look forward to sharing more content with you. Please like and share this out with others. And please let me know your thoughts on episodes. Thank you and please come along with us on our adventure.